0: With a history of 5000 years, it's no surprise that China has created a fabulous treasury of folk tales. Once a year, on the 7th day of the 7th month, all the magpies fly up to heaven and form a bridge. So many amazing worlds to discover. "I want a new palace," said King Mu of Zhou one day. Chinese folk tales retold for audiences today. "Will will you marry me?" He asked Keeps the world turning.
2: This is Round Table.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome to Roundtable. Coming to you from Beijing, I'm He Yang. Good to have you join us. Welcome to the latest installment of Beyond the Cap and Gown, our special series that takes a close look at the challenges and opportunities faced by college graduates in China as the next chapter begins. In today's discussion, we shine the spotlight on vocational education and its critical role in fostering diverse talent, imparting technical skills, and driving. Employment and entrepreneurship. What do job prospects look like for vocational school graduates? Do we see any signs of breaking down the invisible barriers that graduates often face in the labor market? And small, shabby, and delicious eating establishments or Tsang Ying prove that they still have holding power in the competitive dining scene in Chinese cities. We take a look at the charm of these small eateries. For today's program, I'm joined by Li Yi in the studio and Josh Cotterell on the line. First on today's show, we're in the middle of the job hunting season. Employment for vocational education graduates becomes a focal point as the industries they work in, such as agriculture, Mechanics and manufacturing make up a substantial part of our economy. Vocational schools, also known as trade schools or technical colleges, teach hands-on skills for specific careers. Traditional trades are symbolized by professionals like electricians auto mechanics, carpenters, and plumbers, but the list of skilled trades is long and even includes high-tech specialists like avionics technicians and wind turbine installers. Figures show that vocational school graduates these days are doing pretty well in the job market. So Li Yi, fill us in. Sure,
3: maybe let's start first with the employment rate. According to the data released by the Ministry of Education in 2022, the employment rate for vocational school graduates has exceeded 96% over the past decade, but higher vocational education graduates have achieved rates above 91%. And what about their income? Well, there are certain data telling the overall situation. I mean, according to data from the National Bureau of Statistics, the average disposable income per capita in China in 2022 was 36,883 yuan, that's about 5,200 U.S. dollars. And the average annual income for graduates from higher vocational education in the class of 2022 was 55,150 yuan, that's about 7,600 U.S. dollars. That means their average disposable income is higher than the average number. And then let's look at The monthly income part, there are surveys showing that by 2021, graduates from higher vocational colleges saw their monthly income rise to 6,905 yuan, that's about 1,000 US dollar, after three years of work. That marks a nearly 70% increase compared to their income at the time of graduation. In meantime, after five years of work, their monthly income furthered increased to over 8,000 yuan, representing a 124% increase compared to their initial income upon graduation. So it seems that, you know, for graduates from vocational colleges or vocational schools. They have a rather promising career path in terms of salary, in terms of employment rate. However, despite that, there is still a lack of skilled workers in the current job market in China.
1: And we will get into that a bit later. So Josh, you've looked at the Chinese numbers as well as having some observation about your home country regarding this segment of the labor market. Um, Here in China, all those numbers that lead just uttered to us, they're still pretty new and interesting, and it's almost like signifying some kind of change in the labor market. What does it look like to you guys, you know, from the UK, as we've talked about on this show before, that uh, traditionally seen as possibly blue-collar workers or more of these manual labor jobs, actually earn quite a bit and um, enjoy a rather high level of social prestige uh, in comparison to what we're more familiar here in this country. So tell us about your general thoughts on this.
2: Uh, First, about the respect that you you mentioned this word respect, I think that um, vocational skills in my own country anyway, are are certainly respected. Um, And one of the main reasons for that is because they are quite financially rewarding, or at least they can be. Um, It's difficult to know whether or not it's increasing these these jobs are increasing in wealth but actually in the UK since 2021 the number of students enrolled in vocational courses actually rose by 3.5 percent compared to the previous years so and that's actually post-COVID so that's quite promising Um, and also the number of apprenticeships in the UK is also increasing um and it since 2018 it's actually increased by around uh, 9%. This is according to uh, the UK government statistics. So there's definitely an increasing emphasis on this kind uh, on these kind of skills on this kind of training and I think the reason for that is because they are extremely profitable. Mm-hmm. Um I think respect is quite difficult to quantify, right? And analyze what is respect, right? But I think that given how profitable these jobs can be i think generally speaking i would i would say personally that they are very well respected
1: that's really interesting and here in china we've seen at least in the last 10 years there has been growth in salary for those skilled manual laborers but does the social recognition grow on par with those numbers is still a different question to be discussed which we will get into later but Lee Yi, the numbers you offered to us earlier on of uh, above 90% of those vocational school graduates get jobs, that's much higher than many many industries we can think of. So if those numbers are accurate, then it seems like the job prospects are pretty good for those who go through formal vocational education. And as you mentioned, that skilled laborers and skilled workers, they are still a little bit of a rare breed. Those that companies and organizations can employ immediately that can fill these jobs. So we have some figures that offer a comparison of China and some of the other economies which are well known for churning out skilled labor.
3: Yes, I think, you know, as we mentioned, the employment rate of those graduates coming from vocational schools or vocational colleges is pretty high. And one major reason is that there is actually great demand for those skilled workers coming from the job market in the current Chinese society. And uh, if you look at the proportion actually it's not really a big proportion here in China because according to data released by the state council, the proportion of skilled workers in China's overall workforce is 26%. It's not actually a big proportion because the number is 40% in Japan and 50% in Germany. And that's according to data from international labor organization. So. And the meantime, it's estimated that by 2025, there will be a shortage of nearly 30 million workers in the manufacturing sector. That's according to the Ministry of Education. That's a pretty much huge shortage, especially considering China is currently promoting its upgrading of its its especially manufacturing industries so companies enterprises in this emerging especially high-tech industries they are in dire need of high-skilled workers with very professional educational backgrounds so you see on the one hand there is huge demand for this kind of skilled workers but on the other hand are we cultivating enough number of this high-skilled uh, workers for the future career development from the vocational education sector—that is a mismatch or a misconnection being observed in current China society.
1: Yeah, and currently in China, we've seen many reports earlier on this year as well about even the labor jobs that don't require a very high skill level still can't get enough people to fill the jobs. Mm -hmm. So we're also looking at the, well, in the background that our labor force is growing older. And also, you know, some of these not super high tech, but labor intensive jobs don't always get the workers they need. And can the employers pay more to attract people and if not then a lot of these jobs are going to be vacant and is automation going to come in to fill the void and so we're looking at the backdrop that is fast changing with a lot of these big new trends that are making the whole scene just even more complicated for us to come up with a conclusion or really pinpoint on what are the biggest factors that are at play here and also this other piece of information to me is kind of muddying the waters a little bit, but Josh, listen up and uh, offer us what you think in a sec. Recently, we've seen that according to Zhao Pin, a leading online recruitment platform in this country, It published a white paper on vocational college students' competitiveness, and according to the platform's statistics, the demand for vocational school graduates accounts for only 17.2% of employers' preferences, which is very low compared to other educational backgrounds, which seems to insinuate that it's still those holding the bachelor's degree or more than that, to be Mm -hmm. attractive in the labor market. But also bear in mind that this is only one recruitment platform and it's an online one. Possibly people who go Mm -hmm. looking for jobs on this platform or the companies that are posting uh, job openings there are of a particular type, and maybe, you know, we're sort of just neglecting a whole big bunch of uh, demand for these vocational school graduates, the jobs that they could fill. So, I mean, it's all kind of complicated. Mm. Josh, how do you read through yes. all of this stuff?
2: Well, I think that although what I, I mentioned earlier about there being respect for vocational skills, people who go into this work, people who study at vocational colleges, etc. I think that respect is real. And I think that the money is also real, especially if one is able to take that particular vocational skill and become quite independent, set up one's own business, for example. I think that a vocational skill can often lead more of a clear pathway into that. However, I do think that there is still a, a massive bias towards traditional academic roots from employers and just from society as a whole and i think that that's quite a historical bias actually um and usually sadly the historical biases are the ones that are the most difficult to change um and i think that traditional academic roots are still seen as the quote unquote best most efficient option for uh, students, right? Um, even though I think vocational education is is just so important and so vital. Um, and I think actually, in my own country, at least, in the United Kingdom, I think that there has been more of a recognition, an increasing recognition of vocational skills. Um, and I think that employers have started to prioritize candidates with vocational skills. Um, for example, there's a new apprenticeship scheme Um which it's like called an apprenticeship levy in my own country. And this has helped to increase the number of apprenticeship starts. Um, a lot of employers are offering apprenticeships. Um, and as a way, they, they also offer academic qualifications on top of this. But this is still extremely competitive, I must say. It's not as readily available. So that's, that's uh, re- really the picture, I think, right now. And so when it comes to this idea, this notion of respect, Um, which is very, actually has very tangible results, right, when employers are choosing candidates. I think it's quite difficult to change that quickly.
1: Well, since you brought it up, then let's hone into it. In China, let's say two decades ago, you know, when things were still very much traditional lens do people adopt when they look at jobs, uh, manual labor don't really hold very high social esteem, so to speak. But now I I think things should change or might have changed, and this is one thing I want to check with you, Li Yi, as well. I'll give you an example. You know those nannies or caregivers who live with the family with the new baby, and uh, or the USL, you know, the nannies who have specialized knowledge to take care of the new mom and baby for the first month after giving birth. They have such high salaries, or they could. And sometimes they earn more than their female employers. And so I would have thought that this is not news for us anymore in big cities in China then if these folks do earn so much then the social prestige that comes with the job kind of rises gradually but are we there yet do you think that people are enjoying the level of social prestige that they're supposed well that they could
3: be enjoying. Well, I think things are really getting better in recent years, especially as you mentioned, there are certain professions like Yue sao, this nanny, they're being like super hot profession and in great demand, especially coming from, you know, young families. And they can really earn huge, I mean, great salaries. And that somehow is changing people's, concept of this kind of skilled labor skilled workforce however i think there still exists certain stigma you know concerning this kind of skilled workforce or even for uh, students coming from these vocational colleges or or vocational schools i think that's had something to, to do with how we select people in our education system. Because when you look at the traditional education path, usually there are several landmarks, right? For example, like high school enrollment exam and also the famous Gaokao. I mean college entrance exam and usually basically those people who are who are able to get very good academic results in those tests can go to better schools, can go to high school. And that's same for the college entrance. They can go to colleges. So usually people would think that. You know, for those who go to vocational schools or vocational colleges, they have no choices and they have to go to there because they can't really perform really well academically. That's mm-hmm. a very single, basic, one-way to evaluate, to validate students. And that's how we are doing right now and also during the past few years. So that sort of things is promoting certain stigma or discrimination oh. attached to this, you know, graduates or students who are coming from this vocational educational path.
1: Yeah, Josh, Um, it, does this sound any similar to the way that a young person sort of decides on whether you're gonna prepare for college, or going to a vocational school? Because is it like, oh, this person simply fails in academics, and while there's a plan B, you can go to a vocational school. Is it that kind of sentiment, or is it different in your country?
2: I think that there is some of that sentiment, which I think is quite sad, and I think incorrect, I think that it needs yeah, to change, but to change. let's be honest. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, I guess it is changing, but there is still that sentiment. And I think that a lot of students do worry about this. And I think in a lot of countries, including my own country, funding for vocational schools is pretty poor. It's often a lot lower than the pro- what's provided to traditional academic institutions. But those academic institutions generate their own income as well. So... Um, through students going there, so you know, as a as a business model, some sometimes it's quite difficult to even say anything because they bring in so much income to the surrounding city, even right. Some we, you know, we have university cities in my own country, right, like Oxford and Cambridge. Um, anyway, I think that there there is this cultural bias, and also we've got to remember that the reason that we have these sentiments and um, this historic bias is because we are brought up in academic schools from this get-go from the start right um i think even from primary school and early high school to late high school it's academia right it's academic it's in a lot of countries i don't know you can tell me more from the china perspective on this but I, i don't know how much how many vocational skills are even taught in high school i know that at most i would have probably two classes a week out of out of about 25 classes that were some vocational focus to some degree, aside from doing some sort of sport three times a week. Um, and it's really nothing. So, of course, we have that focus. I don't know what the solution Do we need to bring more vocational training into high school before they make that decision? I, I'm not sure.
1: Well, that's an interesting point. I am thinking, Josh, when you look at the figures, though, here in China, actually possibly about half of junior high graduates get into high school anyway. So these are some actually quite alarming figures or shocking figures for for people. But um, a lot of young people or these um, teenagers, their immediate fate has been decided at such an early age and then once you get to the high school age level and then already you know it's like are you preparing for college or preparing for uh, vocational schools and when we are talking about vocational schools here in china traditionally people think about oh becoming a chef or repair cars or things like that. But now, actually, as we've mentioned earlier on, like there are a lot of jobs that might fall in the vocational category, but they're high-paid and they require a lot of knowledge in the technical side of things and becoming technicians. Let's say even you know car repairers now and in the future require one to know how to work the computer and a lot of these electric plants in the repair shop and is not something that anybody with just a three-month crash course can know how to do so
2: yeah no what what you said is very relevant i just i mean if we're looking for some sort of solution Mm. to changing perceptions about this uh, my question was really about how much vocational training did you have because even in High school, there's some usually, Hmm. and it's to varying degrees around the world. So I just wonder what your personal experience was and if you thought maybe there should be more.
3: Well, I think if we look at that, yes, I think in traditional education path, we don't really offer so many vocational training at a very early stage. But I think there are some changes because I think we've discussed earlier that labor courses were kind of introduced into the compulsory education course. But that was
1: in elementary in school. In elementary school, like very limited. But it yeah. gives
3: a, a you know opportunity for people to. You know, like a window to look at what is vocational skills and what can you benefit from learning this kind of vocational skills? And maybe that's not so relevant. But I think especially when you look at there are so many like uh, skills competition being held across China, Mm. in Shanghai, in Tianjin, in a lot of cities. So it starts to send out a message to the public that if you decide to learn certain vocational skills, there is a promising path for you. Mm -hmm. You can learn something and you can really go deep along this way. And even though you want to pursue your diploma, there's also option for you because we are trying to promote vocational college entrance exam. And that is a different education path for people who want to adopt this vocational training. So you see, I think more opportunities are being provided to people out there. But of course, I think Josh has mentioned funding, right? I think we need more funding for those vocational schools, vocational colleges in China to really promote their facilities, promote their infrastructure, and to introduce better teaching talents so that we can cultivate better and more talent skills skilled talents coming from this sector. And in the end, maybe we can meet the demand, the huge demand coming from the labor market.
1: Yes, and there has been a lot more funding that we see in official documents, which say go into vocational education and for the five years between 2012 to 2018, and these are figures from the NDRC, top planning organ in this country, 1.8 trillion yuan went to vocational education training and uh, support. So we are looking at an economy in this country that needs more and more highly skilled manual labors. And it's an ongoing process. So the Earning abilities, the social prestige, as well as the future that these vocational school graduates can enjoy is what is essential to the discussion. You're listening to Roundtable coming up next. Small community based restaurants still offer an unforgettable experience. Stay tuned.
0: From Liang Jiahe How have his work experiences from earlier decades been influencing his leadership as the national leader? What are some of the core principles that have guided his decisions and actions? I consider myself a relatively hard-working person. I know very well that people's biggest concerns are education, employment income. We we. can pursue development through destructive methods, depleting the legacies from our ancestors while exhausting the options for our future generations." The Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series shares the life and work experiences of Xi Jinping and explores the formation of his governing principles, philosophy, beliefs, among others. Getting to know Xi's thoughts on national governance and how his leadership took shape may help you better understand China's path, governance and principles. You can follow the Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series on all major podcast platforms. discussion keeps the world turning.
2: This is Roundtable.
1: You're listening to Roundtable with myself, He Young. I'm joined by Lee Yi in the studio and Josh Cotterell on Line. Coming up, small and unpretentious restaurants are hidden gems on the back street of a city. You gotta know the right alley to turn down, push the right door, and you could find under the radar neighborhood eating establishments. Join us as we delve into the world of these community treasures and explore. The stories they hold within their walls. Our podcast listeners can find us at Roundtable China on Apple Podcast. And we love that you listen to this show, and we want to hear from you. Your observations, questions, and comments, we read every single email and listen to every single voice memo you send us. You can reach us at ezfmroundtable at foxmail.com. Your voice could be featured in the show in our heart-to-heart segment, now on Roundtable, as we continue today's discussion. Tucked away in winding neighborhood alleyways, small and unpretentious restaurants or it's ying xiao guan evoke a sense of nostalgia that transcends mere culinary experiences. Urban dwellers may be spoiled for dining options, they still yearn for these unassuming eating establishments that bear witness to the ebb and flow of history. Despite their humble facades, these little eateries possess an undeniable charm that beacons people to return time and time again. For many, these neighborhood restaurants feel like a culinary haven right at their doorstep, a place that resonates with a sense of belonging and familiarity. So we're talking about Congying Xiaoguan, which reminds me of flies simply <laughs> because of the Chinese and um, people still prefer them well I think um, yes because <laughs>
3: they can still offer like convenience and really good food with really low prices right now and usually you know this kind of yin xiao guan, they are rather small and they are pretty and pretentious and uh, meaning that they are usually not really having good decoration sometimes even being shabby and uh, you don't really expect a good service you know from such eateries or restaurants and uh, however they are known for serving affordable and tasty food and often you know, serving local specialties, and that's why they can you know keep attracting customers who appreciate the true, the truly delicious food, and maybe also those pursue cost effectiveness. So, for example, in Beijing, there is a well-established spicy hot pot restaurant um, nearby. The Huanjiehu community in Chaoyang district and despite being in operation for over 20 years this eatery continues to draw long queues within just half an hour of opening its doors at lunchtime and the interior of this restaurant is packed with customers eagerly awaiting their turn and uh, you know every time every table and aisle would be occupied when you enter that restaurant i guess this example showcases the immense popularity and efficiency of this particular dining establishment and usually i would say you know those Tangin Yin small restaurants uh, usually they are located nearby residential areas and uh, surrounded by a cluster of small eastries and um, Majorly, the customer, the regular customers would be local residents or office workers working nearby and young people seeking trendy dining experiences. Mm-hmm. And uh, they don't really offer very splendid or uh, complicated menus. Mainly, they have a few dishes being offered, but they have been offering those dishes for years and they can keep that quality, you know, at a certain level for years. And that's major reason that it can attract a few of many
1: customers to come to this restaurant yeah and for the small delicious and sometimes shabby little restaurants that you're talking about here Li Yi, for them to have these long queues in front of them they probably have already established some kind of reputation and then as mm. those all over the city would flock there because there's a little bit of that insider cachet that is very cool for people. And uh, it's not just the, you know, three-star Michelin star restaurants that people have heard of, which are usually quite expensive. Why go there? Go to these places that only the insiders know. So, um, Josh, do you have these kind of um, small restaurant equivalents in your country? And have you visited some of the small 성yung uh, xiao in this country?
2: I think I've visited... Some of them in China, although to be honest, it's hard for me to tell all the time whether they are or not. Uh, you know, what? How do you say it again? Cangying Xiao Okay, Xiao Guan, right? Yeah, <laughs> I'm not always sure if it's a Cangying. Oh, I, I forgot it already. I'm not always sure if it's one of those places. Uh, it's it's quite difficult for me to tell. Um, but I'm pretty sure that I've been to them. Usually, it's friends that take me there. Mm-hmm. Um, because you need to know somebody who has takes the initiative to do the research and find these places or is up to date on something like one of the social media apps or something like this. Um I know that Xiao Hong Shu plays quite a big role these days with the advertising these kind of places. And uh, so many times I get taken somewhere. Oh, well, it sounds like people are taking me out all the time. I wish that was true. Sometimes I'm taken places, and uh, people will say, "Oh, This is pretty famous on Shu or something like that. Um, In my own country, yeah, of course, we have equivalents. Um, We have a lot of desire for these kind of places, actually. Uh, I think an increasing um, amount of consumers who want a more... We've spoken about this many times, right? About how consumers these days want a more personalized experience. And I think that along with that, people want a more special experience. They Mm. want unique experiences. They want to go somewhere eat somewhere, take pictures somewhere that they've never been before, that they know that other people can't eat that or take those pictures unless they come to this place. Um, I think there's always been something about food that has tied really into this. Um, I I guess it's just because food is such a special part of so many different, so central to so many different cultures and so many different cultures' ways of socializing. Um, So um, it makes a lot of sense to me. We, We certainly have them, although the cuisine is different, right, in mm-hmm. the United Kingdom. Although I'm sure there are some Chinese equivalents in the UK as well.
1: Yeah, well, what kind of food do you usually enjoy in those UK Tsang Xiaoguan places? Like fish? Sorry, this is extreme. Well, this is very much of a stereotype that I just let out like that. Um, yeah, <laughs>
2: we,
1: you know, I'm curious. Tell me.
2: Well, Heyang, you've spent a decent amount of time in the United Kingdom. <laughs> so, um, you know you know right that although we can joke quite fairly about british food sometimes being a little bit bland at the same time the it's a double-edged sword because the uk especially the city of london is so multicultural you can actually find a lot of great fusion restaurants there um and a lot of local places um that are quite traditional or they mix it up a bit you know they often put a i guess a western friendly twist on it, but sometimes it can be a a real interesting fusion. I think I went to one in London before that was a mix of Vietnamese and French even, and it wasn't particularly expensive or um, glamorous in any way. It Mm -hmm. was a really small place, but it was quick. The menu was quite small and it was awesome. Not somewhere you might eat every day, but it was just great. And everybody was, it was just such a good vibe in there. You know, everyone was really excited to try this food and it felt local almost, you know?
1: yeah. Oh, these are all the necessary elements to a very good sang xiao guan like we're talking about today. I remember, well, actually, as a Beijing local, I don't really know that many good examples here in Beijing. Maybe I just go to certain other restaurants. Um, But the thing is, in Chengdu, in the year 2008, that was a while ago, obviously, I was doing volunteer work for the Wenchuan earthquake back then, and I was surprised by the amazing uh, dining scene in Chengdu at the time. And there was this little and shabby restaurant that I think qualifies what we're saying here. And... I don't, well, back then there wasn't, you know, all that social media, obviously, but yeah, it was mainly the locals who live in that neighborhood would go for a quick bowl of beef noodles, mm. and they were dirt cheap. I was so surprised. At the time, it was you had the option of three yuan or five yuan, and then the five yuan one had a little bit more beef, and They were served in these plasticky balls that I didn't really like, but, you know, the food was amazing and it was spicy to the right amount. And then the chef, server, promoter, whatever. It was just, you know, one man's band uh, restaurant, obviously. And then the guy never spoke a word. (laughs) I went there for like pretty much every day for at least two weeks. And he never said hi or bye or anything. And he would just point to this board on the wall of the shabby shack and then, like, nod at you. like, And you just point or say something. And he starts cooking and then serves you. And you leave the money on the little table. And that's it. So...
3: But it was great. Yes, I think what you just said reminds me of my trip to Chongqing, actually. They have a lot of like such noodle stores alongside the street similar to Chongdu I guess maybe because they are pretty much close and uh, in Chongqing you can you know see a lot of like small shabby noodle store and there are like a lot of local residents who just go to those stores and the interesting part is that they don't really have like a decent table and chair they simply sit on like a small chair and they use some plastic chairs as the table and they just eat that bowl of noodles and which is pretty cheap I guess 3 yuan for like an average Chongqing Mian or oh. Chongqing noodle and maybe 8 yuan or 7 yuan for one zha with some beans inside that bowl and that's it and there are so many you know like Restaurants or eateries like this in Chongqing mm. and also in Guangzhou, and you know, Cantonese people they are like professional eaters, and there are so <laughs> many like small restaurants like this, and uh, usually the boss, the owner of those shops or of those restaurants are not so friendly. They simply don't talk to you. Yes. (laughs) And they just ask you what you want and and you order the food and you can just sit there and wait for you to come in. However, their food is cheap and delicious. So I guess that's the charm of such, you know, they don't really sell their business through their decoration or their vibe like some other Internet famous restaurant do on social media. Mm. Their food, the tasty food, is their strongest selling point.
1: Right. So hygiene is not really an issue for you, nor is the grumpy person that's manning this restaurant? I think it's okay for me (laughs) if
3: I think the food worth my trip. Yeah and I think if I just if it's cheap. Yes, it's cheap. And uh, that's why I think we have so many such uh, small restaurants nearby colleges and universities in Beijing. And uh, I still remember when I was in college we have like a back street famous backstreet and which is known for having a lot of like dirty small restaurants. However, that they are so popular among students, maybe because we can only afford those cheap meals. However, they are really good. They're really tasty. So that's attractiveness, too.
1: Yeah. Josh, have we successfully promoted these um, little eateries to you? What do you think these places mean for a city like? Years ago, when I was uh, in Chengdu, for example, I don't think anybody batted an eye uh, at these places. It's just part of the fabric of the community. But nowadays, people are saying, oh, Mm. this is part of the true identity of a particular neighborhood or of a city or whatnot. So what do you think?
2: Yeah, well, I think that these places are really important for cities and they give cities character. They stop them from becoming stale and boring and you know we don't people don't really want more malls i don't think i i I really i maybe some people but i think most people want to go and visit cities if you look at the most popular tourist destinations in the world if you think about all the cities that you want to visit that are on the list what makes those cities special it is the abundance of small i think places to eat i think is a huge part of it these spots that you can tick off the list um so i i think that it's it's super important and i must say as well in beijing i i think i've been to quite a few but beijing for me as well coming from a small town in england beijing still even though i've lived here for five years it still overwhelms me the size of it and finding these places in beijing um for me is still pretty difficult to be honest and i rely on my friends and um you guys, do, so, do you th- are you saying, Huyang, that you don't think there's enough in Beijing or you just don't visit them that much?
1: Uh, it's probably the latter. <laughs> and I sh- I say okay. this in a slightly uh, embarrassed manner. I should know better of my <laughs> own city, you know? Well, my suggestion here, uh, Josh, well, I mean, this is probably for both mm. of us, if we want to find these places, well, of course, you have Go the together. option of going to... Yeah, yeah sure, Um uh, of course you've got the option of going on social media to look them up or just do the thing old school way that is go downstairs from your home and just scout your your neighborhood you know there's gotta be these places and i think that's the part that i find to be really of the charm of these places that is if it's truly in my backyard and even if Let's say the grumpy, small eatery owner. By the way, not all of them are like that. But even if that person isn't all like smiley and uh, friendly, but if you're a loyal customer and then there's almost this like silent rapport with this person and with maybe some of the other people who frequent the place. And that's the stuff that I love. You know, I'm a people's person. I like to have these... um, Contacts with real people, and uh, I don't think anything beats that kind of connection. And you can go to fancy restaurants or these uh, places that produce Instagrammable pictures, but I, for one, don't really like taking pictures anyway, and I just find them to be a lot very fake a lot of the times and just very superficial, and that I am not a big fan of. But also speaking of, you know, this competitive dining scene that these small um, and and unpretentious restaurants are looking to survive and thrive in, there are all these big franchises, you know, and they are invading all of our cities. And a lot of people enjoy these places. For one, they're usually cleaner and they offer pretty standard food. So um, yeah, what do you think of this sort of like competition between the small players, uh, well, the small potatoes and the big ones? Well, I think you have to admit
3: that this kind of franchise restaurants who are trying to win over customers, especially by offering meals that are cheap, and they are like a huge competition for those very local and small-scale restaurants because a lot of regular customers of these places are pretty much similar group, maybe like office workers working uh-huh. nearby, and they only ask for like a quick meal and with rather low price. So they are so they're kind of in a fierce competition. However, I still believe that. There is like real charm for those tangy xiaoguoer which franchise restaurants cannot really replace. After all, you know, a lot of franchise restaurants, they are offering pre-made meals. You know, that's a very (laughs) cost-effective approach to do their business. However, when you go to those very local and uh, native restaurants, eateries, they are usually like cooking their meals uh, instead of using their pre-made meals. That's one big advantage for me,
1: like winning point for me. And And, and sorry to interject for one second. Yes. Because I know you, my friend, you have whole long speeches about why we should stand against pre-cooked meals and such could you just refresh in our memories on why so why, why did they bother you so much Wow, well, I just think that there is a lack of, you
3: know, or like...
1: What is that? Like
3: fresh smell, fresh taste, mm-hmm. and coming from freshly cooked mules. Mm-hmm. And uh, you don't really get that experience <laughs> yeah. by eating pre-made mules. You can simply tell that difference. And of course, I know there are some people who love pre-made mules because they think it They do? Maybe because they... Um, Well, they don't say no to such food because Mm. on one hand it's maybe clean because they're usually produced in in like a central kitchen and by like huge restaurant chains. And uh, then they can guarantee like a standard taste no matter how many branches they have in the city. Well, that's the advantage of pre-made meals. I admit that, but it's simply that I love freshly made meals and uh, also I you know tend to believe in the recommendation coming from friends and you know acquaintances and that and and usually the recommendation are about those there are Mm -hmm. small and native restaurants nearby your residential areas which are
1: difficult to find or discover so yeah yeah I see what you mean and also the term you just casually throw out there, guo qi, That just shows you—you're a true foodie in that sense. And and Josh, this is um, an example to how like Chinese people are just—we know our food, and we're we're very proud of it. You know what Li Yi just mentioned? It's like you know having this like, uh, almost like. Aroma from the wok, and like apparently every wok is different. So there's almost like personality to what comes from a particular wok, and uh, and if you are a food lover, then you're supposed to be able to detect that and enjoy that. But Li Yi, a lot of us are, our taste buds have been ruined already by the chemicals, by the strong flavoring, and the oil and grease that comes from a lot of the average restaurants out there which offer pretty okay food and you see long lines in front of these eating establishments as well and i guess there's just a very diverse and huge market mm-hmm. for for food like that josh have i bored you <laughs>
2: No, not at all.
1: <laughs> uh, I'm
2: really enjoying it. It's it's really I, I really love uh, your your personification of these different things. It's great.
1: It's just really funny when, and it, just fascinating when you sort of dive deep into like why people love something, enjoy something, or take so much like personal. Allegiance towards um, some of these restaurants or or places like Xiangyun uh, Xiaoguan we mentioned here, and I remember seeing online once one of these places might closed down, and it could be because that the owner who's been behind the stove for like 20, 30, 40 years simply couldn't do it anymore and don't have someone to take over. And also, some—oh, this is actually what I'm about to say is something I read about Hong Kong, With the rising real estate prices and a lot of these small eateries simply could not afford to stay at the same spot anymore because rent is just skyrocket high. And then things have to change. And these changes are the things we despise.
3: Yes. And also, I think, you know, for diners, sometimes it's quite complicated for you to rate a restaurant because, Mm. you know, dining is a quite complicated experience, I would say. It's, It's not only about eating, you know, you also need, you know, proper time, proper mood Even proper location, if you really enjoy certain food coming from certain restaurants. Because I know, you know, there are certain like this Tang Yin Guan, like century old restaurants being super famous, popular, you know, being recommended on social media platform. And some newcomers, they just saw this recommendation and just go to that place to have a try of the food. However, they experience disappointment because after reading those recommendations, they have huge expectation for this restaurant and its food. And however, they may just find that, OK, so the food is just OK. It's just fine. It's not as good as I expected. So you see, maybe because some people have certain places to go to for dining because they have formed this kind of emotional attach or emotional yeah. connection to this restaurant because they have been eating here for like, Years, So it has become their favorite place. But for people from other places, that's a different story.
1: It really is. It really is. And if you're a tourist, I think it's a great joy to be able to visit these places. And as a local, of course, you know, it might mean more to to people as such. Um, While these old community restaurants or these small and unpretentious eateries, Um, do obviously have their charm and strength, as we've spoken of, they are facing many challenges to survive, mostly in cities these days, I would think, because in a village, you probably know know, there's maybe one restaurant or whatever it is, and then that's where people go to. So I guess we're still mainly talking about, you know, this changing landscape in Chinese cities.
2: Yeah, well, I think that, These restaurants are certainly going to be facing a a great deal of challenges. I think one of the biggest challenges is certainly changing demographics. I think neighborhoods are ever evolving, ever shifting, physically changing the the physical geography around them, the buildings, the layouts, legal regulations and things like this um, are constantly changing. And so for these small establishments to have longevity, it's really tough. It's really tough and um, especially given over the last four years because of the the pandemic I know in in countries all over the world it's been really tough for small businesses to stay open and just even big businesses to stay open. Yeah. so what is it what is it what is the, it that defining lifeline that thing that sustains them over all these years um, I, I think ultimately it's probably loyal loyal custom um, and also a bit of luck as well I think just being in an area that for example, Ends up being protected, or is left to its own devices, and doesn't have a brand new high-speed railway being built along it, or something like this, which happened in happening in the UK right now, for example, oh. in certain areas. So, yeah, it's it's a it's a massive challenge.
3: And I think you know a lot of community restaurants. They are usually in small or narrow spaces, and that can also be a major challenge for this kind of restaurant to keep developing. Because especially with the recommendation of social media, that could just bring a larger flow of people, visitors to the restaurant. And with that, that can just lead to longer wait time during peak hours, which can, you know, bring unpleasant dining experience for customers. Mm -hmm. So how to solve that? That's also a question mark.
1: Yeah, that's also a question. And I just love this idea that defies the go big or go home mentality. And if you like these small businesses that bring you something special near where you live or whatnot, go show support. And that usually involves opening up your wallet. You're listening to Roundtable. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Thank you so much, Josh Cotterell and Li Yi for joining the discussion. I'm He Young. We'll see you next time.